0: All right, well today we are uh, continuing our sermon series, Love, Sex, and God. Uh, As with last week, I believe that everything I'm going to share today is going to be appropriate uh, for any school-age kids that we have in here. The middle schoolers are actually uh, having class today. By the way, if there's a middle schooler in here who didn't know we were having class and you'd like to be part of that, uh, you certainly could go and uh, join in with that. Uh, I certainly think this is appropriate for high schoolers today, but parents, check out uh, the outline in the bulletin and see the subject matter, and I guess you can uh, make that decision for yourself, depending on what your comfort level uh, is. Um, I also want to make an appeal today, I think a temptation that folks can face during this series is concluding that a particular topic on a particular Sunday, or, or maybe even the whole series, you're just going to conclude, hey, you know, I really don't need this, this doesn't apply to me, uh, or whatever. I, I want to encourage you, I'm just convinced that pretty much everything we're going to talk about applies to everybody in here in some way, uh, if by chance some week doesn't by the time we get through the series, we are going to have touched on things that apply to every single person uh, that, uh, that is here that comes uh, to the church. But I, I just want to appeal that even if a particular week doesn't exactly apply to you, uh, I'd encourage you to still be very receptive uh, to these sermons. Because even if you can't figure out exactly how to apply the message to your own life, another thing that can happen from this series that we're doing is that you can be better equipped to help someone else when that opportunity is given you. And if by some chance you're not even given that opportunity, then another benefit of this series is it just helps us, it is going to help us to think biblically about a very important topic. And so if we accomplish nothing else But helping us to think biblically on this important topic, then we've accomplished uh, quite a bit. And so I just want to appeal to you, don't tune this series out. Don't say this isn't for me. It is for everyone in some way. There is some way uh, that you are going uh, to benefit from this. So so please give it uh, your attention. Last week, we kicked off the series by looking in the scriptures to see that sex was and sex is God's idea. Sex wasn't dreamed up by Satan. It wasn't Satan's idea. It wasn't thought up by Adam and Eve. Sex came from the mind of God. It's his idea. He thought it up. He designed our bodies for it. And after thinking it up, designing our bodies for it, creating it, he acknowledged in Scripture that it was very good because sex is God's idea, we need to affirm that it is good. It isn't bad. It isn't something that we should be ashamed of. It isn't something that we need to be uncomfortable talking about. And because sex is God's idea, it is a blessing. Kids can result from it. And we all know that kids are a blessing. Amen? Yes, kids are a blessing. It's a great way to express love. It is pleasurable. Sex is a blessing. We also noted that sex, like all of creation, is fallen. It's fallen. So while it was created good, created to be a blessing, because it, along with all of creation, has fallen, it can now either be a blessing or it can be the cause of heartache and even the cause of destruction in our lives. When we sin sexually or when others sin against us sexually, what God meant to be a blessing because of sin becomes hurtful, causes heartache, and can even bring destruction to us. And we wrapped up last week noting that the way to experience sex as a blessing rather than as the cause of destruction is to recognize that God knows how sex works best. Since it's his idea, since he designed it, he knows how it works best. And as the creator of sex, he also has the right to regulate its use. And in the ways that he does regulate sex, it is always toward the end of getting people to use it correctly so that it brings blessing to them instead of bringing destruction to them. And so throughout this series, a significant part of what we want to do is to see from the Scriptures what God says on this topic, how He says this gift should be used, how He regulates its use toward this end of experiencing sex as the blessing it is meant to be instead of the destructive force too many of us have allowed it to be in our lives. And so what I want to do today is consider four purposes of sex, the four primary purposes of sex that we find in the Bible. Uh, these four purposes are commonly accepted as, as the purposes that are outlined in Scripture. But I do want to mention that some of what I share today is influenced by, comes from uh, the book, The Meaning of Sex by Dennis Hollinger, uh, which I am indebted to Stan Tenen uh, for sharing with me. He, he came to me when I announced early in the summer that I was going to do this series and he said, I'm sure you have no idea what you're talking about, so here's a book <laughs> that you can... Uh, that you can get some good information from. So thanks, Stan. (laughs) So so we're going to consider the four purposes of sex. And when we've outlined them, we're going to find that the purposes of sex uh, provide us with the appropriate context for sex. In other words, sex that is pleasing to God, sex that is informed by God, who is the foremost expert on sex... Sex that will bring blessing rather than destruction must be sex that is done in the context of these four purposes. And so let's begin by looking at Genesis two twenty four and 25. We're not showing the verses on the screen again today, uh, but all of them are listed on your outline. So if you have your Bible or you have a Bible on your uh, phone or your iPad, uh, you can look ahead, turn to those places uh, as we approach them and as I uh, mention them. Uh, actually, I'm going to start with verse 21 in Genesis 2. Here's what we find. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So the first purpose of sex, seen here in Genesis 2, is the consummation of a marriage. The consummation of a marriage. And Hollinger notes that there are three elements of marriage that are contained within these verses. The first element is a change of status. For the primary commitment was previously toward mother and father. Marriage represents a change of status whereby the primary commitment now becomes the man's spouse. And of course this isn't just true for men, but for both men and women. Marriage means leaving mother and father for your wife or husband. Now it doesn't mean you don't still function as a as a family with your with your parents it doesn't mean that the bond is to be severed or the relationship ended but it does mean that the primary familial commitment shifts from parents to spouse. The second element of marriage is a unique commitment. Genesis says that a man is to be united with his wife a, a better understanding of this Uh, would be something like a man is to stick to his wife and the wife to her husband. The idea is one of permanence. This is a permanent uniting, not a temporary uniting. It is to stick together permanently. And so the word covenant is applicable here. Uh, That's why we sometimes refer to the marriage covenant. And, And a covenant is different From a contract. In a contract, the parties draw it up in order to protect themselves. But a covenant is something different. A covenant is a deep organic bond between two people, it it, it creates a binding promise of the heart. And here's a key difference between a contract and a covenant. In a contract, you protect yourself. But in a covenant, you don't protect yourself. Rather, you obligate yourself. You make an unchangeable commitment. You obligate yourself. And then the third element of marriage is physical, sexual union. So there's a change of status. A covenantal commitment is made. And then consummation or completion of the marriage occurs through the coming together of man and woman physically as the two become one flesh. The covenant promise that marriage is now is sealed by a physical union that sets the relationship apart from all other relationships. We share with each other what we share with no one else. The two become one flesh, uniquely committed to each other. And here's the final thing that I, the final point that I want to make on sex as consummation of marriage, but I think it's a key point. A point that also highlights why sexual fidelity is so important. Why adultery is so damaging. And here it is. Every sexual act throughout the lifetime of a married couple is to be an ongoing affirmation of the husband and wife's unique union, of their unique commitment, of their covenant with each other. So sex consummates the marriage. And sex is a means whereby husband and wife continually Affirm their unique union. So consummation of marriage is a purpose of sex, and here's another purpose of sex: procreation, procreation. And no, this purpose of sex, rightly understood, does not require rejection of the use of contraceptives, though I would say, and I believe the Bible would support that it does require the rejection of some forms of contraception. I remember Rich Nathan, the senior pastor of the Columbus Vineyard, telling the story of when he and his wife Marlene were getting close to uh, their wedding date. Their pastor at the time was a fundamentalist Baptist, and, and he took them on a long car ride to talk to them about their upcoming marriage. And he, he covered all kinds of topics as they drove around. But as they finished their ride and they were getting out of the car, he, he turned to them as they, as they were just exiting the car, and he said, oh, and one more thing. Don't use contraception. Just trust God for the number of kids you're going to have. And so they got out of the car and walked to their own car. And as they were pulling away, Rich said to Marlene, I trust that if we take that advice, we're going to have 17 children. And so we're not going to take that advice. So... I don't really have time today to go into this topic, but I'll just simply state again that the fact that procreation is one of the purposes of sex doesn't mean contraception is wrong, though there are forms of contraception uh, that, that are wrong. Look at Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. And then Genesis four one and 2. Adam lay with his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. So be fruitful and increase in number. God desired that our sexual union would be a procreative thing. And so he designed it to be procreative. Sex is inherently pro Creative, an inherently procreative act. And God intends for sex to always be viewed in the context of procreation. Here's what this means God never intended for sex to be engaged in without openness to its procreative potential. No, the Bible does not forbid contraception, but it does let us know that sex is inherently procreative, should be viewed as such, and should not be engaged in absent openness to its procreative potential. Hollinger says it this way, a morally legitimate act of sexual intercourse is one in which the man and woman are able and willing to receive the potential fruit of their love. Marriage with its covenant commitment, legal responsibility, and recognition by others is the normative location for such acts. This is part, and notice I did say part, of what's wrong with acts of fornication and adultery. They are generally done outside the context of procreation. Most people who engage in fornication and adultery are not receptive to the fruit that can result from the inherently procreative act that they are engaged in. So sex is an inherently procreative act. It must be viewed as such and embraced as such. Procreation as a purpose of sex is also something that needs to be embraced because of this. God intends human beings to enter the world through the most intimate, loving relationship on earth. And as procreation is one purpose of sex, along with the consummation of a marriage, and along with love that we'll look at here in a minute, God desires children to be born into a loving covenantal relationship. Remember that God knows how sex is uh, to be done and God knows that procreation is best when it happens in the context of a loving, committed, covenantal relationship. And he knows that it's not just best for the people who are engaged in the physical union, but it is best for the children that can result from that physical union. In our desire to never be judgmental, we have almost given up the ability to even acknowledge that some things are preferable as compared to other things. But make no mistake, many of the problems that emerge today in our society do so because procreation happens apart from commitment and the stability of a loving covenantal marriage. This is actually a national crisis. But like so many other things today, there is tremendous pressure to act as though it isn't and not say anything about it. Let's just watch everything burn down around us and not say anything. That's pretty much what we do. God intends procreation to happen Only in the context of a committed covenantal relationship because he wants kids to be born into the most loving and stable relationship on earth. And this, friends, is a morally better way to do things. Procreation is an important purpose of sex because procreative sex is unselfish sex. It it is sex that acknowledges it exists for more than just pleasure. Now, Now, pleasure is a legitimate purpose of sex. We're going to talk about that today. But if pleasure is seen as the only purpose of sex, which it is by many people in our culture, then it becomes a very selfish thing. If it's separated from its procreative potential and from its ongoing affirmation of love, then it becomes entirely about how an individual benefits from it no longer an expression of love and commitment no longer accepted for its procreative potential uh, potential the entire focus is on pleasure my pleasure and it becomes very selfish which god never intended it to be and which unleashes all kinds of destructive things in the lives of people who end up getting used for someone else's selfish purposes Staying in touch with the creative, uh, procreative potential and purpose of sex, embracing that reality helps us to participate in this good gift of God in a way that pleases God unselfishly. And procreation is an important purpose of sex because procreative sex blesses the world and glorifies God. What do we read in Genesis one twenty It is God's will that the earth would be filled with people who are subduing it according to his will. And through procreation, we do this. The, the children that result from our physical unions take up this responsibility. And as they do, they become a blessing to the world. And by fulfilling God's purposes, they glorify him. So consummation of marriage and procreation are purposes of sex. And the third purpose of sex we find in the Bible is love. Sex is a God-ordained expression of love. Ephesians five twenty five through 33 say this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and cares for it just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, obviously there's way more in there than we're going to go into today, but there is clearly in that passage a connection between love and sex. In the context of talking about love, Paul inserts this reference to Genesis 2.24 and the two becoming one flesh Uh, which is rightly understood to be a reference to physical union to sex. Another passage of Scripture that we can learn a lot about for our uh, physical intimacy with our spouses is 1 Corinthians 13. It's not normally viewed as having sex in view, but Hollinger makes the point that this famous love chapter reveals that love entails feelings, inner attachments, and actions. And the same is true for sexual expressions of love. Now let's think about how uh, 1 Corinthians 13 may be applicable to physical intimacy. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 teaches us that love is patient. Is there application to physical intimacy there? I I would say there is. 1 Corinthians teaches us that love is not self-seeking. Is there application to physical intimacy in that? I'd say yes. 1 Corinthians 13 teaches us that love always protects. Is there application for our sex lives there? I would say there is. And so we're not going to read through it today or or, uh, anything like that, but I would encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 13 this week with an open heart to what it can teach us about physical intimacy. And the Song of Songs is all about love expressed through physical intimacy intimacy. And so the point is is the, the Bible has a good bit to say about the per, one of the purposes of sex being the expression of love. Now, most of us don't know much about it. But we have some idea that when the Bible uh, uh, that when the Bible uses the word love, it is a translation of three different words in the original languages of the Bible in the original languages of the New Testament. And these three words get translated love. One is phileo, which is associated with brotherly love. Another is eros, which is associated with erotic love. And then the third is agape, which is godly love, committed love, sacrificial love, love based on a choosing. And phileo often escapes very much attention. I guess there's not that much controversial about phileo, but eros and agape get a lot of attention, often with eros getting negative treatment and agape receiving positive treatment. Some have gone so far as to say that within marriage, eros is to be replaced by agape, which has tended to lead uh, to Christian teaching that over-spiritualizes physical love or sex between husband and wife. I mean, I've had Christian friends who made it sound as though every uh, instance of physical intimacy between a husband and wife needed to be accompanied by intercessory prayer and intensive Bible study. (laughs) But that isn't true, thankfully. (laughs) And Christians should relieve themselves of that pressure. Here's a better way of thinking of this provided by a man named David Field. He says this, the Bible does not teach that agape supplants erotic love, but it does teach that the erotic finds fulfillment only in the context of agape. So agape doesn't supplant eros, it provides the context for eros. It is only in the context of a committed, self-sacrificing, covenantal marriage that Eros finds its appropriate context. But within that context, a man and woman are free to experience Eros without over-spiritualizing it. But let's think for a minute about how important agape is to be the context. Sex is an expression of love. Sex as a way of receiving love is a pretty powerful thing that really does require the context of agape. In sex, we reveal to another person everything about us that we normally keep hidden. We reveal things that we try to keep hidden by wearing black and vertical stripes And and extra tight t shirts and spanks. In sex, we expose all the things about ourselves that most of us would be mortified to let anyone else see. We expose what we are most vulnerable about, we make ourselves vulnerable. We expose all that we are because we trust the other person to accept us as we are and love us as we are. Okay, here's probably the most uncomfortable I'm going to make you, but as we remove our clothes, we not only expose our bodies, we expose our hearts. We trust the other person with that with which we are most vulnerable. Yes, sex is an expression of love. And when it is disconnected from love, it becomes very damaging. As we reveal what is normally hidden to another person and they see and embrace what we show to nobody else and we see and embrace what they reveal to nobody else, it is a powerful expression of acceptance and love if rightly understood, you cannot expose your body without exposing your heart, which is a big part of the reason that sex outside of a covenantal commitment is so very damaging. So we found that the purposes of sex are the consummation of marriage, procreation, love, and the fourth purpose of sex is pleasure. Proverbs five eighteen and 19, which I also read last week, may your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts satisfy you always. With certainty, these verses reveal sex as pleasurable, appropriately pleasurable. And then the Song of Songs, the most embarrassing book in the entire Bible, which is why nobody ever teaches out of it, And we're really not even going to teach out of it in this series, but we are going to read from it occasionally, which will be the most uncomfortable things we do in the series. Song of Songs 7, 6 through 9. Please keep in mind that I am reading the Bible, so this is perfectly okay. (laughs) How beautiful you are and how pleasing, pleasing, pleasure. O love with your delights. Your stature is like that of a palm and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like the clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. Even though the imagery may not translate to the present day very well, I don't know how many women would consider it a compliment to be compared to a palm tree. (laughs) But it is obvious that this is the language of pleasure, sensual, sexual pleasure. The Bible is supportive of sexual pleasure in the right context. Remember, sex is God's idea. Sex is pleasurable because God made it that way. That sex is pleasurable is verified by the Bible and by nature. That sex is pleasurable is as objectively true as that sex is inherently procreative. Let's be honest, even sinful sex is pleasurable only for a season and it leads to heartache and destruction. But sex is inherently pleasurable. God made it that way. And in the appropriate context, that pleasure is a good thing, a good gift from a good God. One of the best things that could happen to the church of Jesus Christ is for us to divorce ourselves from the notion that God is against pleasure. He's not. Too many Christians, I believe, view pleasure as worldly and the experience of pleasure as always suspect. But it is God who created pleasure. In fact, God has prepared for us pleasures forevermore. God is pro-pleasure. Even in this fallen world of ours, a beautiful sunset is a pleasurable thing to experience. Sitting beside a beautiful lake on a warm day is pleasurable. Those things are gifts from God. God created all kinds of foods that... Bring us pleasure. It is pleasurable to eat a really good orange. Not so much to eat a bad orange, but a good orange is pleasurable. It is pleasurable to discover a new kind of fruit you've never tried before. I Remember the first time I bit into a kiwi, I was just amazed that this was so good and I had never had one of these before. Remember the first time that I scraped out the fruit of a pomegranate it was so delicious, even though the digging it out was not very delicious. <laughs> Michelle and I were out of town this week, and uh, we were in Atlanta, and we did a quick online search and uh, found this place, this burger joint that's supposed to, you know, be one of the best in town, and, and we went and tried it out, and it really was one of the best hamburgers I've ever eaten, at least hers was. Mine wasn't quite as good, but... Uh, <laughs> The experience was just pleasurable. Not only was the hamburger pleasurable, but the beef fat fries were pleasurable. And the sweet potato tater tots dipped in the toasted marshmallow (laughs) was pleasurable. And the perfectly crispy onion rings were pleasurable. The gluttony was a little sinful. (laughs) Sitting around the dinner table when uh, there's really good conversation happening with uh, your family or your friends, that is a pleasurable thing. The point of all of this is that pleasure was and is God's idea. He created it. He provided it for us. And one of the pleasures that God created and provided for us is the pleasure of sex. God is favorable toward pleasure. He came up with it, including the pleasure that we experience in sex. So four biblical purposes, consummation of marriage, procreation, love, and pleasure. These four purposes reveal the appropriate context for sex. Sex is appropriate when these four purposes are present between the man and the woman who are going to be physically intimate with each other. Again, Hollinger summarizes this very well. A morally legitimate sexual act is in the context of these four purposes. He writes, when we isolate only one or several of the purposes, we distort God's intentions and fall short of his designs and hence his joy. These four purposes are found in only one location, the marriage of a man and a woman. This is where God designed sexual intimacy to be. As I noted last week, the reason we go to God for instructions on sex, the reason that we acknowledge that God has the right to regulate the use of his creation is because when we use this gift according to the purposes for which God designed it, And within the context of the purposes for which he designed it, then we are able, and only then are we able to experience it as the blessing God intends it to be, rather than the destructive force that too many of us have experienced it to be. And here's a key thing that I want us to keep in mind throughout this series as we look about what God says on this topic and as we look at how God regulates it. As with all of God's commands, this is true of every single command in the Bible. God does not command things just because he wants to see if he can make people do stuff. That's not why he does it. God doesn't do stuff because he wants to restrict your joy. Every single command, every single regulation that God puts in place for our sex lives is not meant to restrict our joy. It is meant to maximize our joy. God wants your sex life to be a joy. He wants it to be a blessing. And you increase your chances of that exponentially if you follow God's advice on its purpose and its context. Why don't you stand?